Last week, we started talking about a biblical theology of worship. We looked at Adam and Eve in the garden. We saw that the garden is is a type of temple and that the temple is a type of garden. Uh, We saw that God called Adam and Eve and all of their offspring to worship him. We saw that basically we, we can understand all of life as worship. And how are God's people supposed to worship God if they've fallen and if they're not holy any longer? You know, when you see Adam and Eve in the garden, there God gives them a call. What's the call? Who remembers what the call that Adam received was? Take care of the garden. Take care of the garden. You're supposed to be a prophet, a priest, and a king in the garden. You're supposed to defend the sanctuary of God from from the invasion of Satan, essentially. And yet when Satan Satan comes in with his false worship, what do they do? They absolutely buy it, hook, line, and sinker, and they, they follow the false worship. And so now, instead of a call, obedience, and then a meal that they share together in the garden, this fellowship is fractured by their sin. And now something has to be done. And so because of that, now in Israel's life, we certainly find this at Sinai, now there is a need for... There's a need for atonement. There's a need for a sacrifice before they can come into God's presence and before they can worship him uh, in the spirit of holiness. And so we also went through the history of Israel, how it's really a history of failed worship, right? Uh, Over and over again, eventually God tells uh, Israel, you have have failed to worship. Uh, You have failed. You have been thrust out of my presence. That's what happens at the end of 2 Kings 4.20 says the Lord cast them out from his presence. Again, we, we recognize there's a similarity there to what happens to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They are cast out of God's presence. And now here's Israel and they get cast out of God's presence too. They have failed to worship God. They have failed to worship God and he is still gracious to them. He is still kind. But Malachi, at the end of Malachi, do you remember what we, we talked about, right? When the class was ending, and Malachi ends on this promise that the Lord himself will come into the temple. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And then what happens? 400 years after the words of Malachi, Jesus is born. And I do not have to tell you that Jesus kept the law. Jesus was the perfect worshiper. Um, Jesus ends up being a contrast to every person that is born before that. He's a contrast to uh, Hezekiah, even though Hezekiah tried to make reforms. He's a, he's a contrast to Josiah, even though Josiah tried to reform. There are all these imperfections still in their lives and in their, and in their ministries as the king. Um, Jesus is a contrast to the wicked kings, of course. He's a contrast to Manasseh, who led Israel into sin. Um, He's a contrast to everybody that came before him. The thing that makes him different from all of them is that he pleased God in every area of his life. He failed at nothing. So whereas, remember, we go back to Adam and you see the failure of Adam. You see that Adam fails. He he doesn't worship God. He doesn't love God. Instead, he he loves himself and he loves self-worship and he loves the worship of the devil, right? He, he believes that Satan is honest and he believes that God is a selfish liar. And, and so there's a need for atonement. And so Jesus comes and Jesus pleases God. He ends up being the perfect Adam. He ends up being the, the Adam who succeeds where the original Adam failed. And of course we saw, and I hope you saw it too, how Israel in getting cast out of God's presence 
was like Adam getting cast out of the garden. Israel is like Adam taking another run and failing at it too. And so they fail. Where do they get cast out? Well, I don't know which way, that, which way is east. <laughs> they get cast out that way. They get cast out to the east into Babylon. So Adam was not a good Adam. Israel was not a good Adam. Jesus comes along. He comes out of Egypt. He goes through the steps of all the things that Israel goes through. And yet, what is the difference between Jesus and everyone else before him? He succeeds. He obeys. He's the perfect worshiper. Finally, there's a perfect worshiper. There's somebody who loved God with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. There's somebody who loved his neighbor as himself. There is somebody who finally actually did it and kept the law and did the thing that Adam was called to. Now that he does, he lives a life of response. And well, we, we saw the Last Supper, even tonight, right? We see the fellowship that Jesus has with the Father and that the Jesus has with us. And so Jesus worships God in absolute perfection. He establishes his church. He makes himself the sacrifice. That used to be a big part of Israel's liturgy, right? Because what did Israel have to do at Sinai before they could come into God's presence? They had to kill a bunch of animals. You know, they had to um, come with a sacrifice so that they could even stand in the presence of God and not tremble. And Jesus says, that's me. That's me. And it fundamentally changes all of the worship that comes after. Because now you'll notice there's something that's missing from our services. We don't have any sacrifices. We don't have a bloody altar. We don't have uh, fire. We don't have any of those things going on. Why? Because those things have been accomplished in Christ. And so Jesus has simplified our worship greatly. Uh, greatly. <laughs> you know, I went to seminary, and one thing they don't teach in seminary is how to slaughter an animal or how to clean its entrails. I'm really, <laughs> I'm grateful, I'm grateful for that. Um, I also love bacon, so there's a lot of reasons why I'm, I'm glad that we're not living in that time period anymore. Um, now, here's the thing. Jesus gave perfect worship. That does not mean that the church now offers perfect worship. Perfect worship still has not been restored yet. And so when we worship, I want you to think of what we're doing in terms of, in terms of the already and the not yet. Have you heard that, that phrase before? You know, there's a reality of what's going on right now, but there's the thing that God is taking us towards that's coming soon. And, and um, so what does Jesus do according to Hebrews? Well, I'm actually going to turn to that and read to you from it. From Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Jesus is conducting worship in heaven and purifying the worship in heaven. And I want you to hear what what it says. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I mean, just think of. In the Old Testament, what a terrifying thing it was for the priest to enter into the holy place. Um, this one person goes into the holy place and he's shaking, um, at least if he thinks about what he's doing. And then, and then it says, we don't just walk in there trembling, terrified, afraid, thinking this could be a death sentence if we did something wrong. He says that with confidence we enter in, you know, you just walk right in. Um, But he says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So he's typologically, he looks at the the curtain in the temple 
And he says, that's a type of Jesus's flesh. And in order for us to go past it, it's got to be separated, right? It's got to be opened like Jesus was, right? Jesus says, my body was broken for you, right? We talked about the need for broken bread. He says, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now, again, the need for a high priest hasn't gone away. Why? What are you all still like? What are we all still like? We all need a mediator still. Like the need for a mediator hasn't gone away. We are still, we're still in one way like Israel at Sinai. We still need a sacrifice, right? That's, that's, it's still part of our worship. Um, it's still, there's still the need for it. So we're not like Adam in the garden. We're not like Adam in the garden. We're like everybody after that ever got to worship God. And so it says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. This is his application. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's using the language of, remember we talked about uh, unclean, clean, and holy, right? Pure, impure, and holy. And how the, the impure can't come in contact with the holy because it corrupts it. And so Hebrews is saying, we go into God's presence because of Christ with our hearts washed so that we are pure and can come to the throne room of God. We can enter into a holy place. He's using the book of Hebrews or sorry, Leviticus as the thing he's interpreting all of what Jesus does for us so that we can finally come and we can have worship with God. And we don't need to put any more animals to death. Um, so the author takes the purification and the cleansing that was part of worship at Sinai. He applies it to Christians Our confession, our church confession has a really wonderful way of putting this. And especially when it talks about our good works, our worship, oftentimes we sort of tell ourselves that we can't do anything to please God. And it's true that in ourselves, we don't have the ability to please God. But I I do hope that Christians more and more will recognize that, that because of Jesus, we can please God. We don't like Maybe we don't, we're nervous to say that. We don't want to say that we can please God because we want to keep acknowledging that we're a sinner, right? First John tells us, anyone who says he's, that he does not sin, there's no truth in him. And we don't want that to be us. And so we, we don't ever want to say that we can please God. But the reality is, what does Hebrews say? He says that we've been washed. He says that we've been cleansed. We have a heart that's been sprinkled clean. And, and then what does our confession say? The persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. So because of Jesus, the worship that we render, the praise that we give, you know, even as we're standing here and we're singing, could any of us say, oh, our hearts are fully engaged? Could any of us say we weren't distracted about some worldly thing at any point in the whole service? Um, today was your test. It was an hour long sermon. An- another one. This was it. And, and so could anyone say that they listened the whole time, perfectly engaged and heard everything? Probably not. And Jesus says, Jesus says the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. Your good works are accepted. They're going to be flawed. They're not going to be perfect. But the point is that Jesus takes it. It's like Jesus takes it and he cleanses it and he washes it so that when God sees the little that we do, the little that we can do through Christ, through his sacrifice, we 
we come and we say, God, I, I love you. And we say it imperfectly. And Jesus takes that. And what does he do? He gives the father a perfect I love you. And he sees what you've given. Yeah, John. You mentioned the, uh, last week that worship was, uh, in, you know, in, in the garden, it was being obedient and uh, doing the tasks that God gave uh, mm-hmm. Adam to do. So in that sense, wouldn't I, it's not just Sunday, but it's in our entire lives are worshipful if we are obedient and desiring to please God and love Him. Mm-hmm. So that's reflected in every moment of our day in that sense, isn't it? Yes. So, and one thing we're going to get to is, the, is this issue that in this class, we are initially, we're talking about our whole life as worshipers. But one of the things we're going to zero in on so that we don't go so broad that we're start talking about sanctification and, and um, the holiness in the Christian life, that would get us a field from sort of where I would like us to focus. I want us to focus in this class on corporate worship, specifically when God's people gather together to worship. Um, the, everything there is worthy. But when we start talking about that, we're really talking about how to live the Christian life, live out sanctification, how to become a holy person. And I think that will keep us unfocused. So I'm going to be a little more focused than that. So you're right. You're absolutely right that all of life is meant to be worship. But the, God gives specific directions for corporate worship. And so because of that, I think God distinguishes between personal worship and a life of worship and corporate worship where everybody gathers together and follows his instructions and in how to please him. So, so that's actually going to be something I'm going to bring up. But you're right. So not going to argue with you at all. Um, actually, I want to finish reading this passage in, from, from uh, the confession because I still love it so much. Um, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them, that is our good works, in his son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So maybe you sense that in your own life. You sense that you don't worship God perfectly. You don't worship him completely. You don't give him your whole heart. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. You, you, you remember that time you did something for somebody. And you remember also that your motivations were mixed. Maybe someone saw you doing it and you had multiple reasons why you did it. And you wished that you had only one reason. I love you, God. But maybe someone who was watching or maybe you had some other motive behind it. And so you think God's not pleased with me. I want you to see that even our imperfect good deeds done in love toward God, however mingled they are with sinfulness, he's still pleased. See, we, we get to basically, he looks at us and what does he see? He sees Adam in the garden fulfilling his call, right? He sees us doing what we were supposed to do in the first place. And because of Christ, he washes us and he takes our sacrifices, even our flawed, you know, if you've ever gotten a picture from your child, uh, you know, your kid comes home with a picture. Um, I think it's duck week at school or I think they're starting to do ducks. And I suspect I'm going to be presented with an image of a duck that will not look exactly like a duck. I don't know it for sure. They could be amazing. I can't prejudge, but I think I will be presented with a less than perfect image of a duck. Um, but when I see the picture that my child gives, I am going to be blown away because this is my child. And I have to think that in, in some ways, the imperfect worship that we give to God, he still receives our, 
our worship like that. Um, he's washed it. He's washed it in his son so that it's as though his own very own son is, is giving it to him. Um, so the ceremonial cleansing that they had to do at Sinai now is provided, not through an animal sacrifice, not through ceremonial washings, not through festivals or various rituals, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no, there are no obstacles now standing between us and worship. And we're going to talk about this as, um, as we keep moving forward in church history. But one of the things you're going to see is that initially in the early church, when God's people gather to worship, there is an immense simplicity in the worship. They are reading the word. They are praying. They're opening the word and explaining it to each other. They're having the Lord's Supper together. Uh, They're singing psalms. They're singing hymns together. Um, This is very simple worship, right? And then what you will start to see, and we're going to go through all of this together, and I'll give you more details as we get there. When we get even into the later period of the early church and we get into the Middle Ages, one thing you are going to find is that the vision of God begins to, as I would interpret it, be eclipsed again by the fear of the wrath of God and a diminishing of Christ. And I say that because over and over again, you see developments in the church that put things between God and the worshiper. The, um, the belief that you must receive, that you must receive baptism or you can't have your original sin washed away. Uh, the belief that you must receive the mass if you're going to have remission of sins, the fact that you must have prayers being given for you or your soul will never get out of purgatory. Um, Or I think this is even more insidious, the encroaching, what I'm going to call Mariolatry, where Mary becomes this exalted figure who you actually go to so that you can approach the throne of grace. So instead of a prayer devoted to Jesus and his mercy, you will find, and I will read for you, just so you know I'm not making these things up, nightmarishly blasphemous prayers given to a mortal woman. Uh, and the idea of these prayers is that God is wrathful and angry, and his son Jesus Christ is wrathful and angry. And so who can we go to to be a go-between with us and God? Well, it has to be Mary. We have to go to her in our prayers. We need to ask the saints to intercede for us and God. And what you start to see is this massively built up structure where the worship becomes nearly unapproachable and, and, and literally unintelligible at a certain point, depending on where you live, so that there are all of these obstacles created between the worshiper and God. And so these early chapters where we're going through the early church, I really want you to treasure the New Testament and the early church period because what you'll find is such simplicity and it is a dramatic contrast to what we'll start to see later. And you'll, it'll help you to understand why the reformers become so vociferously angry at what has taken place, at just the sort of, the sort of nightmares that are taking place in the worship service that God never invented and never told them to do. Um, so <laughs> I'm giving you a little bit of a preview of what we've got ahead for us. We have some good and we've got some the, we got the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, maybe that would have been a good name for this worship series, but it's too late now. So uh, history of worship in the church, the good, the bad and the ugly. 
So the complexity of the Old Testament worship, though, are now replaced by the simplicity of worship in true, in spirit and in truth through Jesus. So let's look, though, at a passage. Um, actually, I'm not going to read it word for word, but I do want to refer to it. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Revelation. Um, we'll look at chapters two to five, but we're not going to... We're not going to atomize it and go over every, every detail of it. Um, I want you to notice there's a heavenly liturgy in the book of Revelation. Now, again, what's liturgy? If I asked you what is a liturgy, what would you say? I don't know if I actually defined it. In order of, of events that happen. In- okay, yeah, an order of events, an order of worship. Like The liturgy is just what you're going to do first and then what you're going to do next and what you're going to do next and what you're going to do next. Everybody has a liturgy. Um, If you go to a church that doesn't hand out a bulletin, do they still have a liturgy? I mean, every church has a liturgy. Um, We all have, we all go to to somewhere that has a liturgy. I've never been to a a liturgy-less church. But I've also been to churches where they do not think they do a liturgy. They're like, we're just chill and authentic and we don't have a liturgy here, you know? Um, It reminds me. I don't remember what movie this is, so I'm not endorsing any movies here. But I remember one movie where there's a guy, and he's a surf instructor, and he tells this person that's learning how to surf, you know what, man? In this place, we don't wear watches. And he's like, oh, that's so cool. It's like, yeah, because we, had, we use our phones. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> Just for a second, he's like, oh, you guys are so laid back. I have to think that that's kind of like what liturgy is in churches today. It's like, yeah, we, we don't do a liturgy here. We just do it in a certain order, man. Um, we're all, we all have a liturgy. Um, so let's talk about the heavenly liturgy. You know, we found a liturgy in the garden. Uh, we find a liturgy at Sinai, very similar to this. Um, in heaven, what are, what's the heavenly liturgy like? First of all, in Revelation chapters 1 to 3, what does the church do? The church gathers around Jesus. That's really what happens in those first three chapters. Just like at the foot of Sinai, what do they do at the beginning before the the Ten Commandments and before God meets with them? They gather, right? They gather at the foot of the mountain. And in Revelation, the church gathers in the first three chapters. And then in chapters 2 to 4, God calls them to worship. What does he do to each and every church? He, He goes to each church and he points at them and he says, worship me. And he's got specific instructions for each one. You, church, you've gotten cold. You, church, you've, you've, you've forgotten your first love. Um, you, church, you keep listening to false worship. Don't do that. And he's, he's got a word for each of them. But what is he doing? He's beckoning them all to come and actually worship him. Um, and then uh, in these chapters, he's doing something else. In the call to worship, he's also calling them to confess. Because they all have sins, right? Every one of these churches in Revelation, they all have flaws, they all have sins, they all have ways that they've been falling short. And Jesus is calling them to repent. He's calling them to confess. And that's what's taking place in those early chapters. Um, you find something similar in uh, chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. No one in heaven or, uh, or in the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. What is that but a confession? Look at how we can't do it. We can't gain access to God. We don't have the right to initiate heavenly worship with our God. Who's going to do it? And of course, we have the answer in chapter 5. What happens in chapter 5 of Revelation? Who's the centerpiece? 
the lamb who's slain, right? The lamb who was slain stands at the center of heavenly worship. And what do they have? They have the cleansing of the lamb. Uh, and it allows these people to approach the holy God. And then later on in chapter five, you have this praise by the angels. They cry out with a loud voice, holy Lord, sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long? How long, O sovereign Lord, how long before you judge? And what are they doing? They're crying out to God and they're giving him glory because they know he's a sovereign judge. So they're, they're, they've been washed in the, in the blood of the lamb. They've had their confession. They've, they come to him by, uh, by Jesus Christ and the angels and the whole of creation are praising God. And this is something that um, Jonathan Cruz points out in his book, What Happens When We Worship. And last year, I recommended that right before our summer break. And I'll recommend that book again to anybody. Um, One of my favorite books on worship. But Jonathan Cruz mentions in that book how so many times people feel bored by worship. And it's because they don't think about what they're doing. And they don't think about what's really happening here. And when we see in Revelation 5 that the angels and all of creation crying out and worshiping God. We need to understand that, that when we gather to worship, we're joining our voices with them. We're participating in heavenly worship. And if we saw that, if we realized that, then we would, we would not find it boring. We would not. But, but often we don't engage all of ourselves and we don't, we, don't, we don't engage our hearts and minds and we're weak for various reasons. Or maybe we didn't sleep enough. We have all kinds of human reasons why. Um, but if we saw what was really happening, if we understood worship for what it is, then we would never say, oh, I find that boring. And then you have the response of prayer by the saints. There's a lot of prayer in the book of Revelation. People are crying out to God. They're they're pouring out their voices to him. And do you remember, what does the book of Revelation climax with in chapter 19? What takes place in Revelation 19? I'll give you a hint, verse 6. The marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. Meal, right? Um, the, 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 the Bible begins, the Bible begins with Adam and Eve having these trees that they have access to in the garden. And then what does the book of Revelation end with? It ends with this meal where God and his people meet together and they do the thing that they've been building towards for the entire existence of Israel and the entire existence of the human race. This is the climax of of all of it. This is what it's all been leading towards. That our hearts were made for God. We were made to know him. We were made to worship him. We were made to be able to come and be before him and to be washed clean and to be able to stand in full joy. And this is where it happens. Revelation 19. Um, There's pure clothing of the church because of Jesus Christ. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Um, all the obedience of Jesus, all the sacrifice that he's given permits the church to draw near and do what we failed to do the first time in Genesis 3. And so here's what happens. Our earthly worship is a type of engagement with this heavenly worship. So when we gather to worship, we're gathering with the heavenly chorus that Revelation shows to us. Think about how much that would change it. Imagine if we told our children before we come into worship, you know what, today... I want you guys to think about what we're doing. Think about the heavenly chorus that's worshiping God and the fact that we're joining our voices with them. 
that this this is frail worship. You know, we, we sing off key. I don't think you guys sing off key. I think you have perfect voices. We sing off key. One of us does anyway. Uh, you know, we, we get the words wrong. Sometimes a wrong word is printed in the bulletin, especially in the psalm, and it always messes it up, and then we mess up the rhythm. You know, like, there are just typos in our lives, typos in our bulletin, typos in our singing. Not Terry, though. It's all my, it's all, it all comes from me. Um, speaking of typo, the family worship guide is all messed up, and it's my fault. So you can still use it, but it's going to seem repetitive to last week because I messed it up. Um, why? Because we're imperfect. <laughs> um, but we're part of the heavenly choir that's in that glorious scene in the book of Revelation. So... Um, we need to see ourselves as part of that. And that's kind of why I've been sort of trying to paint this whole picture of the worship of God's people, how we failed in the beginning and where we find ourselves now. And so I hope you rejoice to be able to, to be in that better position now so we can go to God without impediments between us, without the need for these go-betweens any longer. The only person you need is Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you go to, to God and you worship him in the spirit of holiness and in spirit and in truth. So what have, what have we seen? Like, I, basically, I want to set you up then for the next class and for where we're going to go from here. Because the rest of this class, other than the New Testament lesson, which we should do in two weeks, I think we're going to do the, the, um, the synagogue next week, and I think we'll have it all done in one class. Um, but then we're going to go to the New Testament. The New Testament class is going to be a lot of exposition. We're going to open the scripture again. We're going to look at how God's people worship. But after that, we're going to be moving into historical land. We're going to be moving into, wait, how did everybody else do this? And so what did we see, though? We saw that God made us to worship. We saw that sin frustrated our worship. We saw that Christ restored our worship. And now we can worship. Um, that is a really important. If, if we did the rest of this class and we didn't cover that, that would be really irresponsible. I, I want you to understand what God has done for us. And then as we go through church history, I want you to continue to see how human invention continues to throw friction into the equation, continues to get between people and God. Um, so the next class, we're going to ask the question, okay, so now how have God's people done that? How have they worshiped in history? And we're going to move from um, the practices of the sacrifices in the Old Testament and uh, the, the worship in the temple. And instead, we're going to talk about the synagogue because the synagogue ends up giving us the picture of worship that the New Testament church copies. Um, what we do on Sunday mornings, if you ever go to a synagogue and you sit in on a synagogue service, a lot of it's going to seem foreign to you. But if you look at what they're actually doing, you're going to find a lot of it familiar. The one thing you certainly won't find is the Lord's Supper. <laughs> but you're going to find prayers. You're going to find psalm singing. You're going to find opening of the scripture and reading of the scripture. Uh, you are going to find somebody giving some kind of, what's that? Some of the scripture. They're going to read a partial scripture. Um, you are going to find there's, there's preaching that takes place. You're going to find that they have a pulpit. Um, there is a lot of familiar forms in uh, the synagogue worship. And, the, and the, I want you to understand that so that you understand why, how our worship is the way it is. Because it's not um, a thousand miles away from what they were doing. Um, and so understanding the synagogue and what they did and how, how it was done is going to be very helpful to you. And I think that it will be really enlightening. How many of you have ever been to a synagogue worship service? I, I have no. All right, we got one. We got one. 
Well, you can tell us all about it. No, you don't want to. <laughs> I went to a wedding. Oh, you went to a wedding in a synagogue. Okay. Um, did they sit or did they stand? They sat. They sat, okay. They modernized. So anyway, we're going to get to that. We'll start that next week. And then I'm, I'm really excited to open up the New Testament and actually show you the stuff that we can't see because there's a lot you can see in the New Testament about how God's people worshiped. And then we're going to be moving into new territory where we're going to see the good and the bad mingled together. And I'm going to try to be very appreciative, but at the same time, there's going to be, there are going to be negative things that start developing that I would be negligent if I didn't draw your attention to them. So um, we're going to try and sort of follow some of those developments as they happen. Um, but in the meantime, let me pray for us. I've got two minutes. Are there any questions about what we covered today? Then you know what you get? You get out two minutes early. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we get to come to you and worship you in spirit and in truth, that we do not have to live in fear of the judgment of God, that there is no one we need to know or go to or go through except you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you are not a hard taskmaster, but instead that you receive us sin and all, and that when we come before you, it is a thing of gladness, that we get to stand before you washed in the blood of the lamb, that we get to stand uh, before God knowing that there is no sin that you hold against us, to know that we can bring our, our works to you, that we can please you in the Christian life now because you wash us and you wash our works in all their flaws and in all their imperfections. And so we thank you, O God, and we praise you, and we ask that you would help our lives to reflect your greatness. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.